Hello all and welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the city nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host Danny and with me as always is my co-host Nick. Hello. The premise of our show is very simple. For each week we have carefully picked two films which we think have things in common. We shall then discuss them to find what their common traits are. One is my suggestion based on my particular area of expertise, Golden Age of Hollywood, as well as the pre-code era, and the other is chosen by my co-host, which is from their specialty. Oh, so that would be anything from uh, 1970s New Hollywood through to the current blockbuster age that we're living in. The only rule is both picks of the week have to be first time viewing for the other person. So today's theme is around sisterhood and family and we have um, two quite interesting picks I would say. Yep, interest I'll go with I'll go with interesting. I'll go with <laughs> very interesting picks. Yeah, uh, before I go with before I ask Nick what he thought of my pick, which is the 1942 film in this our life starring Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland, directed by John Huston. Um, I wanted to give a bit of insight into the context of this film and the production. So we know that the great legend that is Olivia de Havilland um, is still alive. She's just turned 104 at the time of this recording. She's, I think she's turned 104 um, a week ago, a week and a half ago, on the 1st of July. Uh, she was always considered a bit of a goody two-shoes, having played the ingenue um, al- alongside Errol Flynn for a long time during her early career. She's had, at the start of her career, the same problem as Betty Davis, Warner Brothers, i.e. Jack Warner, who was not known for being too kind with his movie stars. I, I wrote an article when we talked about Betty Davis and, and, and John Crawford and whatever happened to Baby Jane about how Betty Davis fought Jack Warner for better parts and sued him. She was unsuccessful. However, Olivia was not. She won. She was tired of being typecast as the ingenue, so she fought back. Prior to her winning, what was subsequently known as the de Havilland Law, Jack Warner used to do this adorable little thing with stars. If they were suspended and didn't work for a period of time, that time would be added at the end of the contract. So if, let's say, they signed a seven-year deal, and during this time they were suspended for two months for whatever reason, if they were ill or on holiday, whatnot, he would add that time on the contract. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got a question, right? Yeah. So, this this kind of whole period, you know, in the 30s and 40s and what have you, but in the 40s you had World War Two, and I know for a fact that um, uh, Jim, Jimmy Stewart went over and fought in the war and stuff. Um, yeah. And there was a couple of others that I can't remember the names of. Yeah, Clark Gable, I think, but... did, did as well. Yeah, so how would that work? Would they, you know, they serve over abroad for three years and then they come back and that would have be to the discipline. add that onto their contract? That would be the discipline. And I think Olivia de Havilland, I will, I will share it in the show notes, Olivia de Havilland um, explains it 
better with like the legislation and all the details she sued them in 1943 and the decision was reached on the 8th of December 1944 so by the time the boys came back from the war they could technically invoke that law and I think many of them did uh, there is an interview in, in which she explains what happened and how she sort of got around to suing them and how she managed to win um, so yeah, I think it was a bit like a slavery deal for preventing one from leaving a job um, if they were unsuccessful. She um, she she set up a precedent. Uh, Jared Leto and and Shannon Leto of the band Thirty Second to Mars credit the De Havilland Law with resolving hang on, their music, hang, hang music on. contract in two thousand nine, which also sets a precedent for music artists citing this law. Yeah, hang on. Did you just <laughs> reference 30 Seconds to Mars and Jared Leto on this podcast? I did. I'm not a oh, fan, no. but I think, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know anybody that is a fan apart from Jared Leto himself. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I just didn't expect to hear that in that, that band in, in this context. So, well, yes. No, yeah. It's all connected. It's all connected, yeah, you know. Butterfly effects, six degrees of separation, and whatnot. Mm, so, yeah. Of course, during the time when uh, she was suing Warner Brothers, 1943-1944, and quite a bit of time after that, she was blacklisted for most of the studios in Hollywood because Jack Warner had quite a bit of power. Uh, but the curse was finally lifted. She landed on a role in a production called To Each His Own with Paramount in 1946, and she won her first Oscar. She had the last laugh, of course, for she, like I said, she's still alive. She's just turned 104. Jack Warner lived to be 86, but he died a miserable old man, having alienated his own son. More, if you want to know more about the Warner Brothers story and other incredible stories, but true, I suggest the Secret um, Hollywood Histories, which is a great podcast, and I will, I will share, uh, share the link in the show notes. Um, so yeah, in This Our Life, which is the third collaboration between Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland, uh, here's the synopsis. The, the day before her wedding, a pampered young woman absconds with her sister's husband. In retali retaliation, her sister begins seeing the woman's former fiancé. So, Nick, what did you think of the movie? I mean, so first off, I just want to say like that information about Olivia de Havilland um, was really quite interesting. Um, references to the terrible emo bands and all. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, so in This Our Life... Um, I feel I feel a bit let down. Um so the talent in the in the film, the premise, it's kind of got all the ingredients for a really good film. Um in that you know it can it looks at how loyalty between siblings is kind of stretched and looks at the collapse of marriage and how unsavory behavior you know gets ultimately punished or is kind of interlinked with like class and racial discrimination but none of that it it, it doesn't it 
all of that together doesn't ha- really happen in this film. Like it's all just merely hinted at, and it's all bit party, and it doesn't hit as hard as I think it should have done. Um, and it's it's hard for me to not compare this with two other Betty Davis films, both of which we've had on this podcast. Um, Whatever happened to Baby Jane and Stolen Life? Um, it's kind of the only the only way I can kind of bring my thoughts together in in kind of comparing them in comparing these films together i mean whatever happened to baby jane it's fantastic performances and a really really fantastic film and stolen life yeah it was it's a funny how they're all about sisters (laughs) yeah funny that um i stolen life like it it's i thought you know it was it was okay but it could have been better and it was kind of saved by a really really good betty davis performance that's spoiler alert killed off um anyway but but this one like i said i think all the parts parts of it are all somewhat better than the whole thing um john houston for what i can gather made this after the maltese falcon um and this film just didn't feel as accomplished as that um nowhere near as accomplished as that you know maltese falcon is one of the greatest films ever made and same with um his post-war film because i know he went off uh in the war to do a load of filming. Yes, um, he did. And then in the post-war film, um, Treasure Serial Madre, which both me and Danny have, have consistently refer- referenced to in this podcast as being one of the greatest films of all time. Um, this this film, In This Our Life, it just kind of has, it doesn't have the identity or the directorial stamp that I saw in Maltese Falcon or Sierra Madre. It just, the film just kind of felt fat like it was like almost like a stock film from the era Hmm. um betty davis's performance is it's okay she isn't chewing the scenery um like she isn't having as much fun with stanley as she did as as the evil in quotes twin in a stolen life um patricia um you know with patricia i could i could see that betty was having fun with the awfulness of the character but with Stanley, uh, just I just don't think she cared. To be honest, I could really, I I really saw that she just didn't care in, in, at all with this performance, um, in this role. Um, Olivia de Havilland, I thought she was okay in this. I, um, I don't think like the potential to show the inner conflict or of the anger about you know her husband leaving with her sister it just it it, it wasn't there and it just kind of like i said it just just it was a bit meh and a bit flat um in the two films i've seen with her this and gone with the wind i thought you know i i liked her performance in gone with the wind better but i really want to see something else from her that's a bit more like meaty and something for her to chew on and really get into like i might you know suggest... like betty davis like betty davis does in um uh all about eve um one of her other films that you know she's fantastic yeah. in yeah i might suggest the snake pit and the the heiress okay i'll add those onto the potential the list for things to come yeah, um, I mean, uh, it doesn't only... have to. It doesn't mean that we'll have to talk about them. But in terms, if you want to see more of her work, um, those are really good films that she did, and um, it kind of shows her a range. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I do want to like. I just want to see something different from her. 
because the two roles I've seen from her so far are just kind of a bit samey and like a bit Which, same and where yeah, I think well, the performance goes, of Gone with the Wind is better to... like yeah it goes back to what you were saying doesn't it yeah it goes back to what was, how she was being typecast and after after suing them you could see her both of the films I've mentioned they're post 1944 so post the the decision and post her having been blacklisted by Hollywood so I kind of agree with you here when we say that she's yeah she's she's kind of playing the same person as she did in Gone with the Wind but I do think there's some differences but I'll get to that in a minute um the only character that I think is kind of even remotely interesting is is Parry Clay played by Ernest Anderson you know one of two African American um characters in the film um he his his whole thing just needed more screen time with him trying to be a lawyer and true background to him um he deserved to be more central to the plot of the film but obviously for obvious reasons this wasn't (laughs) going to happen in 1942 um which kind of leads me on really where i'm going to end up derailing this i hope you're prepared so oh. if 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 you are a long time listener of this, you would you would know remember that I remade a stolen life. Um, oh dear! With here we go. I remade a stolen life with Michael Douglas, Robert Pattinson, and Catherine Zeta Jones <laughs> as a as a nineteen eighties style erotic thriller because at the time I was watching a lot of Michael Douglas films where he gets his head fucked with. Um, <laughs> so with this. I, f- I feel the need to remake this one because, like I said, I feel like there's a better film in this. So I've got cast and I've got director, and you know I've I've got justifications for everything. So I hope you're prepared for this. Go on. All right. So Stanley should be played. Um, should be done. Re- her new performance be Natalie Portman. So it's worth kind of worth saying that. I've kind of skewed a little bit older to what the characters are in the film because I think the characters are meant to be in their mid to early 20s in the film, yeah. for what I can gather. Yeah, I think Natalie Portman can pull off mid 20s. She's still. Yeah. Yeah. Mid- and yeah, and Betty Davis so, was like... 34 at the time she made this, so it, yeah, it could, it could happen. Yeah, Portman's. She hasn't hit 40 yet, has she? And by the way, not, Shirley, not I think Shirley Henderson. Is it? Shirley Henderson. She was thirty-seven when she played Moni Moni Myrtle in in Harry Potter uh, and the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, she played a teenage ghost, but she was thirty-seven. So yeah, it could happen. It could happen. Um. Yeah. All right. So yeah, like I said, Natalie Portman. I've gone with gone with Stanley. I mean, people don't kind of don't see her as having like being associated with bad doing bad and malicious things. Um. But I think her performance in in Black Swan, I think, really shows that she has it in her to be tormented yeah. and a, a lot more she, dimension. She to could what, be a, a good baddie. I think she could be a good yeah. Villain. I really, I really, and I'm all, I'm all for you know going against you know going against typecasting. All for it. Um, remember last week we you know I spoke about um in our in a Morricone episode that I I thought if you were to do a another western with a with a henry fonda like villain then it should be played by tom hanks because it would be excellent <laughs> well um, you've seen road to perdition right i haven't no uh, well, that's on my I'm, yeah okay all right 
Yeah, okay. so that's kind of the that's kind of the the, the Frank that Hanks plays. So it's kind mm. of like, although, well, I'll let you watch it and then we'll discuss it afterwards. Okay, um, is on my watch list. Um, yeah, so gone with an early point for Stanley. For Roy, I've chosen Emily Blunt. Um, I think if you see her in, if you saw her in Looper, for example, um, she really can play off this empathetic and caring character yet someone that is totally torn yeah, i agree and almost too devoted to something um peter um i've gone with ryan gosling because i can see him playing a man that is drowning in a bottle basically i can really and, see and someone that two women can fight over yeah yeah, yeah. i mean yeah because... I, I could yeah Dennis Morgan was not it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and with Fleming, um, I've gone with uh, Chris Pine. Um, someone that oh. I've always ended up... I've kind of just ended up associating with, with good. And I think it's a combination of his performances as Steve Trevor in Wonder Woman and um, as Kirk in the new Trek films. Um... He's just kind of got that goodness about him. He can't play sleazy. He can't play that. I mean, he was um, smoking aces. Is excellent. He's really, really good in that. Um, and he was uh, uncredited for his main role as a rich billionaire nutter in uh, Joe Carnahan's Stretch, which is a fantastic little film that no one's seen. Um, but yeah, no, I really think Chris Pine could really pull off that whole kind of goodness but then end up being, you know, you can see him kind of being mistreated by someone who doesn't actually know how good he is. Um, so yeah, yeah. That, that, that's kind of what I got there. Okay. Um, yeah, interesting. I've, I've kind of want to redo because I think this film was set in the mod, the, the 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 south. It is, yes. Um, with you know the those scenes set up in Baltimore. So I think instead of there, I'm going to go with modern day LA. Um kind of like Nightcrawler maybe yeah hmm. Nightcrawler or um Dangle Roy's uh it was Dangle Roy done both of these uh, Nightcrawler and Velvet Buzzsaw kind of around like that kind of version of LA um okay. with kind of more emphasis played on like the racial discrimination and, and class you know class disparity that's around um and with that in mind I think the film should focus more on Perry Clay or should have more of him in there and I've gone with Lakeith Stanfield an actor I really 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 like um, and I can really kind of see playing off the rest of this cast perfectly his opening bit in Get Out is fantastic and when you see him later on it's haunting he's excellent in uh, the TV series Atlanta as Darius um, and yeah so I think I've gone with uh, for Fitzroy a kind of a character that is I think needs to be arched more and played up with this you know the class being responsible for the class discrimination and all that yeah um I've gone with Woody Harrelson um because I think it'd be funny okay. um seeing him take on that kind of role and then with the director I give the film to Jennifer Kent 
um, the director of The Babadook. I don't mm. know if you've seen The Babadook. I have, have seen, the seen it, yeah. It's great, great film, great film. Yeah, um, a film that really has a distinct visual identity. I haven't actually seen a follow-up, Nightingale, but I've heard good things. If if uh, uh, diversive yeah, things over list. Nightingale. Um, but she has a very distinct visual identity, and I think she can really unravel the kind of psychological torment that is definitely in this premise, but isn't there in the film that we got. Um, which kind of kind of wraps it up. Like I I think there is a better film in this altogether. Like you know that's why I've recast it, like I did with the Stolen Life, because I thought that there was a better film in that, and I think there's a better film in this. And I kind of just feel really disappointed with the end product, considering of the cast, you know, that we got and the director that we got. So yeah, well, that's I think... kind of me on that, really. Okay, I see. I w- I wasn't really expecting you to like it, to be fair. Um, but I do. I it was basically more of an excuse for me to sort of keep talking about Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland and mention uh, John Huston, who I think is is good, is like one of the greatest directors of all time. Uh, I think, yeah, you, you kind of picked up on the fact that there's not much in terms of his identity and sort of like his trademark on, on this film. And guess what? The reason he made this film, are you ready? You're gonna tell up. You're gonna just tell me you didn't direct it all together. Well, no, I think he, for some reason, I didn't find, I couldn't find the reason, but for some reason he dropped out to during the last week of filming, and was replaced by Raoul Walsh. But the reason he actually picked up the project in the first place was because he was having an affair with Olivia de Havilland. Oh, okay. <laughs> so much for goody two shoes. Yeah, okay. I mean, it, it's kind of... It's not unheard of. I mean, um, Kate Capshaw, you know, was... I think the only reason she was in Temple of Dune was because she was screwing Steven Spielberg at the time. <laughs> and then they I ended up marrying a few years later. Um, okay. Yeah, like, yeah, like Temple of Dune came out in 88, I think. 80, yeah, 88. I think eight, Temple of Dune came out, 85. And... Um, I know that Spielberg got divorced with his first wife in like 89 and then got married to Kit Capshaw in 1991. So I think all kind of, you know, not conspiracy theory or anything, but you know, there's definitely something there. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean, I mean the list, the list of, of directors having um, affairs with, with their leading ladies is, is, is very, very long. <laughs> It's like miles and miles and miles. A it's, it's... shocking list for all involved. Yes. Um. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I said, it's the third collaboration between Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland. There's an interview which I will share in the show notes in which Olivia talks about the previous films they made together and how it took a third film to for Betty Davis to warm up to her. And I think it was... I think it's well known now that Betty Davis was was not known for to be a super friendly person. I think she was too focused on her work um, to form friendships on set, which might have attracted attracted some bad press, rumors of feud, left, right, and center. Um, somehow Olivia, to her credit, managed to see past the icy exterior, and and they formed a really good friendship. Um, I must. I feel like I have to sort of mention that they might have found something in common, the two of them, given the fact that Olivia was having an affair with um, John Houston on, on, on the set. 
um, Betty Davis had just wrapped, well, yeah, she just wrapped um, the little foxes and she was having an affair with um, with um, William Wyler. Sorry, I had to think about that for a second. I was thinking about it because she, I think she had an affair with William Wyler during the making of three films she did with him, um, which was um, The Letter, The Little Foxes, and Jezebel. Um, so yeah. Uh, in a, in a 1987 interview, she said that she this movie she's re regretted making, calling it a most disgraceful film. So I think you and her might have something in common there. <laughs> she, she went on to say it was one of the films that she should have made, claiming that she begged studio head Jack Warner not to cast her. She elaborated, saying that she didn't feel it was right for her and that her character was supposed to be a very young southern woman. Uh, she was 34 at the time. Um, personally, I think she did a good, really good job. I think she looked youthful enough to to pass for a twenty something year old, but it, like I said, if you within the context of some of the other films she made around that time, you kind of understand where she's coming from. So she's just she's just done um, the Little Foxes with William Wyler, um, the Letter, Dark Victory, Jezebel. She had nomination Oscar nominations for all these films. So from 1939 till 1930, 1943, um, she was nominated every year for leading um, actress at the Oscars. She only won in 1939 with Jezebel, but you kind of understand what the level of, of roles she was doing at the time. So this was kind of a, a bit of a setback for her because I agree with you when you say that there's the film could have been better and there's there's i think i think it lacks something but it's not all like unredeemable either i think um, i think it lacks it lacks spark and i it, it is either it's either it lacks spark from the actors or it lacks a directorial stamp or it lacks a style or a genre to lean into or a it's theme one of those things into. isn't it because they say that the great art comes from great like torment and the fact that john houston was happily in love with olivia de havilland might have had terrible repercussions on the on this film because if they were happy there was no tension there was no anger there was nothing to there was no spark to the spark was off off camera um so i think that might be why why this really didn't yeah um but yeah um so 1942 was i think was a great film for betty she made she had just been nominated again for the little foxes she was making now voyager which we'll talk about in in a future episode and i can't wait um so I think yeah I think there's 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 reason why she would be unhappy with the material. But um yeah so let's talk a bit about John Houston of the famous Houston clan. He's father of Angelica Houston and Danny Houston whose epic brows were discussed on our episode when we had um birth the film 
with Nicole Kidman. We haven't we haven't we haven't discussed Angelica Houston yet and her amazing eyes. Yes, uh, we should we should actually add her. Yeah. I think we should have a dedicated episode on the Houston clan. For Angelica Houston, can we can we do either um the witches? I haven't seen or... the witches, so yeah, let's go. Ooh, that'll be a good one. <laughs> yeah. John Huston, two-time Oscar winner for Best Director and Best Screenplay for The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is probably my favourite Bogart film, and according to legend, is the film Paul Thomas Anderson watched every night while filming There Will Be Blood. That's not a surprise in the <laughs> least. Yeah, I, 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 I do understand. I do kind of agree with you in terms of like his stamp is kind of like lacking because there's not, yeah. There's not enough darkness to this film that could could have been sort of highlighted, um, but at the same time, I just I just feel like I have to defend it because you have Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland. Um, I I think that, like I said, despite the fact that Stanley is supposed to be like evil personified, I think Ma Betty Davis manages to make her more three dimensional. I think the fact that she's kind of yeah, in a, a bit of a daze, quite self-involved and unaware of her surroundings, it just makes her a bit more, like, yeah, even perhaps ditzy, like, she doesn't understand that her actions have consequences and that she's made some mistakes and people don't, yeah, and people suffered because of those mistakes. Um, so there's, I think there's two ways you can look at it. She's been sheltered and pampered all her life by her mother who, um, despite being an invalid, would defend her with her last dying breath. And she's also been very much spoiled by her uncle, who seems to have maybe some sinister intentions. I think if you think about the fact that this was made during the production code, so a, a slightly torrid story, like sort of backstory, had to be carefully disguised. So you kind of see him being quite creepy to her. So it is possible that Stan Stanley might have experienced some sort of abuse at the hands of her uncle, blocked it out of her mind completely, and but sort of made her lash out and rebel against the family. So yeah, I think that darkness could maybe be better highlighted, but I do, I did really like the scenes between her and Charles Coburn, who plays the uncle, um, yeah, the the weakness of her own father, who's lost his business to this uncle, uh, seems to be inherited by Stanley's sister, Roy, played by Olivia de Havilland. However, I think that when Roy's husband leaves her for Stanley, I think that's when her own, her true self comes to life, um, and she manages to sort of pick herself up buy a new hat and move on and in maybe make a project of of craig fleming who is the jilted fiance and again i think yeah you, you kind of say that she's playing the same goody goody as she did in in gone with the wind but again i think she makes the ingenue into something else just like betty davis made the sister into something else so yeah um, I'm I'm glad that you picked up on on the um, portrayal of of Perry, played by Ernest Anderson. 
I think it's fair to say that there's a bit of a just more just portrayal of black people on screen in this film than you'd be used to seeing in the thirties and forties. It's so, certainly one of the better ones. I've yeah, seen I mean, it's, if you compare it to to the rest, yeah, um, you you might might think, well, yeah, you have people who are actually quite kind to to Parry and they don't laugh at his dreams. Um, and I I feel like I need to quote him because I I really quite liked the, the sort of mini monologue he gives. Um. He says, a white boy, he can take most any kind of job and improve himself. Well, like in this store, maybe he can get to be a clerk or a manager. But a colored boy, he can't do that. He can keep a job or he can lose a job, but he can't get any higher up. So he's got to figure out something he can do that no one can take away. And that's why I want to be a lawyer. And yeah, funnily enough, well, not funnily enough, but yeah. Uh, Warner Brothers was named the was named on the honor roll list of race relations of 1942 because of the dignified portrayal of African Americans in this film. However, scenes in which Ernest Anderson's character was treated in a friendly fashion were cut for, for showings in the strictly segregated American South to avoid offending those viewers. And the film was initially disapproved for export by the Office of Censorship in Washington, D.C. because it suggests that the Negro's testimony would be totally disregarded by the jury when it was disputed by a white person, which in the South at the same time and for many years afterwards was true. Um, it makes me think of, I don't know if you've seen the film A Time to Kill, which I think is a brilliant court drama. No, I don't. I haven't, no. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's really good, and of course, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, which is like the quintessential Southern drama. And yeah, I find it inexcusable that they kept perpetuating the these sickening values for quote unquote fear of offending the people in the South. Um, we also have um, Miss Hattie McDaniel in two scenes playing, of course. The maid she's playing uh, Perry's mother uh, but I find her Minerva a bit more tempered and perhaps more resigned than M Mammy sadly she, she she doesn't have that feistiness and that joie de vivre and yeah, I thought, I, thought I, I was happy to see her and I was I mean I yeah her, she's she's but... she's a legend you know whatever whatever she does is just fine with me but yeah it's not the same sort of character. George Brent, I just feel like I have to mention him because I've watched so many films with him in the last few months because he always pops up in all these pre-code films that I've been researching, um, playing Craig Fleming. And um, I just... I, it, it's interesting how you paired the character of of Fleming with, with Chris Pine because for me... Chris Pine and George Brent might be sort of walking the same, treading the same waters, so to speak. They're both very wow. attractive. They're, they're both just very attractive, but I don't think they're both... I don't think either of them is, is particularly a good actor. But they're very, very kind and gentle and good. Um, I, th I, just I, th think, I think Chris, yeah, Chris I Pine think... is an excellent actor, so... Okay, but it, it was... Yeah, fine. 
for me, I just don't know what he doesn't do. It. I think George Brent is a matinee idol. Um, I think he's quite out of the league of both Olivia and Betty in terms of acting chops. He's had, I just feel like I have to mention that he's had a few interesting roles during Precode, and I would recommend if you're interested in seeing more of him. Um, Babyface with Barbara Stanwyck, and Curtis Price with Barbara Stanwyck, Female with Ruth Chatterton, The Painted Veil with the great Garbo. It was in um, 42nd Street, which I've seen. Yes, yes. Um, he was also with Betty Davis in Jezebel, Dark Victory, The Old Maid. Um, and I think he, he seldom proves that he's just, he's more than a handsome face, I think. Yeah, I just, yeah, that's what I think about him. Um, in Jezebel, for instance, he plays off, he's kind of playing second fiddle to Henry Fonda and you can see the difference in, in acting levels, I think. I mean, I'm a big, big fan of Henry Fonda and there's no one better. Well, there are a few better, but not, yeah, not George Brent. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going on a rant about George Brent. <laughs> no. Uh, overall, I just, I liked it because there's so many, like, classic um, faces in this. And, yeah, I, um, it's quite, I, I quite like this film. And I, I just wanted to have an opportunity to talk about it. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad we covered it. Um... I think you know, I, I think sometimes because I've watched it about three times already now, and I think sometimes it just feels that the, the actors are playing with the parts instead of playing the parts. If you know what I mean, it just there's times where Betty knows that she's she doesn't really like being it, but she just has a just laughing at herself, um, kind of making a caricature out of Sandy. But I do, I, I yeah, I I quite liked it. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So we're kind of moving on, taking we're taking a bit of a sharp left turn. Um, I think a ninety degree turn, almost a hairpin. I think, um, mm. but still on the same road, if that makes any sense. So we're still going to be talking about sisters, but in a quite remarkably different context with uh, my choice uh, for today. Um, so. Uh, the film the next film we'll be discussing is uh, Raw from 2016 um, from French director Julia de Cornell. Um, I've, I'm got a brief synopsis and then I've kind of got an introduction about the film. Yeah. Okay. So, in so this is synopsis. In Justine's family, everyone is a vet and a vegetarian. At 16, she is a gifted teen ready to take on her first year in vet school where her older sister orders also studies. There, she gets no time to settle. Hazing starts right away. Justine is forced to eat raw meat for the first time in her life. Unexpected consequences emerge as her true self begins to form. So I was I was kind of a bit uneasy about having this film on the podcast originally. Um, I kind of just had it on, you know, as a suggestion for you as a laugh. And then it kind of turned into worry. Um, <laughs> uh, so this this is a film that I first heard about in because of reactions because of its screening in uh, the Toronto at the Toronto Film Festival in 2016. So there's a report in Vulture which I'll link to in the show notes um, that kind of sums up what happened. 
Um, so, at the TIFF screening, two people were seen be attended to by paramedics in the lobby, with an ambulance arriving toward the end of the film. I heard a third person passed out, but I wasn't there for that, said Sarah Sampson, a press representative for the film. Sampson tells me that one guy in his 20s got dizzy when he left, started to pass out, and hit his head on the wall. The other guy, who was a TIFF volunteer, started making gaggy noises and also had to flee his seat. A friend who had seen the movie at Cannes had told me that at a screening, an entire row of elderly people got up and walked out at once. And then, so yeah, that, that's kind of my introduction to the film. That, and then it, it went to Fantastic Fest, which is very much the, the, the kind of festival, film festival for the websites, film websites that I kind of follow, and, and it got a lot of buzz out of that. I was already excited and went on to watch it myself. And I I have a strong stomach for things that happen on screen. You know, I've seen Irreversible twice and, you know, it kind of just doesn't really bother me, you know, these kind of things, unpleasantness. But this film, it, it got under my skin. Um, so I suggested this film first as a laugh because I thought it'd be funny to have you watch this. And then I thought, uh oh no, this is this is a bad idea. This is punishment. Uh, as I was rewatching the film, I was like, oh no, what am I making Danny do? Um, so for a person that won't let me have Gremlins or Gremlins Two on the pod because of how <laughs> they look, or found I no didn't plans... say it was because how they looked. I just don't. <laughs> um, or found Lopan's fingernails disgusting in Big Chom and Little China. How did you how did you fare with Raw? Well, um yeah, I was yeah, I had to take a lot of time to prepare myself because I was kind of ready. I had heard words like cannibalism and Raw is in the title, so my mind yeah, wanders and I just expected what I saw. I didn't so I had I had the expectation set up from the beginning and I think we discussed about having expectations when you when you sit down and watch a film. I think the people that you described and their reactions, they might have not had those expectations. They might have not known what they were getting into. So I do think that this film has might have might might need um a disclaimer at the beginning just to yeah because some people might be yeah like myself i had to you mean be like a, you mean like a you mean like a jackass disclaimer yeah yeah warning Something the stunts like you're about to see on screen are performed by trained professionals do not attempt any of what you see as if you would go out and eat raw meat but yeah. no but it's something like you know these images might be very very disturbing and yeah maybe if you're yeah if you if you get queasy quite easily you you don't want to do you don't want to watch it um so i was I, I kind of i went in expecting something like that i went in also expecting to see a film that was great and i was not disappointed i am a big fan of mark hermod's um program on radio 5 and i think he talks and he loved this film and he talked about it and i it was on my list of, of films to watch for a long time so yeah, i think he named he named this film um his the the, the best film of 2017 yeah um when that was quite a strong year as well so it's quite yeah. saying something 
Um, I so I yeah because I wanted to see it for a long time. So when you suggested it, even in jest, I was like, yeah, let's do it. I'm up for it. So having said that, I just yeah I I really I liked it. <laughs> it's funny to say that I liked it, but I did. I surprised myself by liking it, and yeah, I I think it's a brilliant film, although perhaps pun intended too raw a metaphor to portray to portray this cursed legacy should i call it um i don't know coming of age um animalistic discovery of one's sexuality uh but going yeah i think for me the the, the idea of like cursed legacy stood out i think we all have bad genes and finding out what it is that we've inherited from our parents um and stuff that we don't like or maybe not agree with is important fighting it like once you find out what it is finding fighting it is very hard sometimes impossible but i do think that this film does a great job in in showcasing like what the struggles are um yeah i just i found it funny at times i mean the old man with the dentures um comes it's trying to be funny, but at the same time, it will not let down the guard in terms of how gross it can be. So yeah, it adds another layer of disgust on top of another layer of disgust and so on. So yeah, by that point, I think you become yeah immune to it. You're like, yeah, what else? Just come, come at me. <laughs> um, I do think, yeah, I think the film uses quite a lot of provocative metaphors for um, what is a rite of passage, a struggle to find um, one's identity. Justine, like you said, she's top of her class, she's a prodigy, she's going to this um, top vet university and she knows everything, she's correcting her sister's homework, she's she's like like maybe like Roy, she's a goody teacher, she's, she's the good sister. She's vegetarian, she's an animal activist, that's why she she wants to become a vet she explains to her um, new schoolmates but she is ultimately still a child until the rite of passage is complete and she hears the three blows of the air horn and then she wakes up and yeah that was quite a shocking discovery so having said that there have been moments and that was one of it when i had to look away so you can't look directly at what is shown to you on the screen because you feel queasy but overall i think it was a compelling cinematic experience the music was haunting and beautiful the long static shots made it maybe like in those long static shots you don't see much gore but you you still have that rest you have that uncomfortable feeling like something's going to happen and something not good like in those classic horror films um and it made me as uncomfortable as seeing justine cough up furballs i like the eeriness of the long sided shots and i think you could see julia de cornell's sort of trademark and stamp on it i think i think she's she's good i think i would like to see more of her and i would like to see her approach to like proper horror I, I mean I think this is horror but it's it's more than that 
Um, and I think I read somewhere that she was made, she accidentally watched the cha Texas Chainsaw Massacre when she was six years old. Yeah, I, I, I actually have that. It was actually in my notes. Um, I actually have the, the quote um, that she, you know, th th about her saying about this. Yeah. Um, so I'll link to the into the, into the show notes. But um, so the quote is, my parents brought me to a dinner party, I think she recalls. Probably my older sister was sleeping at a friend's and they didn't find a babysitter or something. So they just put me in the bedroom with the TV and I changed the channels. I guess the people whose house it we were at must have had cable TV. The thing is, I only remembered it afterwards. Ten years later, I was a teenager and someone told me, you should watch this movie. It's awesome. I watched it and I realised I'd seen it before. And then I saw myself in that bedroom watching that movie I remembered. Um, which is really weird that she says that, you know, that she remembers something that she's happened to her before. And it's kind of, that's kind of like an underlying theme of this movie as well. Yeah. Like you said, like the genetic remembering yeah. as it were. Yeah. Uh, having said that, I don't, I, 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 I do think it, 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 it's not without its, its flaws and I would probably not sit down to watch it again anytime soon. Perhaps if I hadn't prepared myself for, yeah, the avalanche of fetid and utterly vomit-inducing scenes, I would have probably stopped it and just taken a breather and maybe thrown up. But um, I, 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 you powered, I, you powered through. That's the main thing. Well, you got through. it's not. It's not saying as 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 if. Well, yeah, I made it to the end. As if there was a massive chore that I had to do. There was something that captured me, and I understood it. I understood the story and and what it was trying to express. They had. I I felt there was a lot of symbolism, and I think that everything was there for a reason, and it was incredible. Um, and the execution was almost perfect, unlike the Neon Demon, whose ex execution was a bit lacking. This was again, it's from the beginning, a captivating story for me. Um, it, there's something about like cannibalism in general, just in films, that is automatically you, you hear that word and automatically it puts you on edge. The thing is, it's such it's like the ultimate taboo, you know? Yeah, it's like the, the, it's yeah. the, the ultimate one and you know like leon demon you know you know i didn't i didn't tell you what that was going to happen you didn't ex yes that put that put you on edge when you saw it um it did same thing happened when i watched weekend jean le godard's weekend and i think that's one of the reasons that i just yeah it 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 was i think that is the last film i watched of his and i was like yeah no more that's it jean le godard and i are broken up we're not friends anymore um and by the way yeah don't watch don't watch weekend <laughs> i mean you can watch it it's just it's, it's a god art it's a god art film so i i it's it's not on my list yeah um i just yeah i think yeah the symbolism was great the the use of primary colors i thought it was never random um i love that scene where she's supposed to make out with this guy and she's covered in blue paint and he's in yellow paint and they have to sort of make out and mix together and that, the blending of their in like identities um and it's it's interesting because you have i mean when you sort of start a relationship when you make out with someone you, you take on their 
you know, you make an ex there's an exchange, and the fact that that was visible was quite yeah. It was I, I liked it. Um, I understood why Julia de Cournot chose to to represent family ties in such a ridiculous way, as well as like the the beginning of the university experience. I thought it was a bit of a satire. I surprised myself laughing at some of the scenes, um, especially the Brazilian waxing scene. I thought that was ridiculous. I, um, you were laughing at that, were you? I was, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you don't cut wax with the scissors. That's not, you do, you, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I just, it was funny when, when the Alexia, the sister, was just like, lifts her arm and you see the, the finger missing and and then she just passes out and then when she wakes up and she sees Justine munching on her finger it was just like what I thought that was just like her face is just very expressive and you have that tear on her eye and you're like yep kind of you see them kind of bonding after that because she covers for her sister because she knows uh, what the curse is, what the family curse is. Um, having said that, Alexia, I find her a bit of a bitch. She's she quite cruel. She's quite cruel with Justine. I mean, that scene with and at the morgue, I was just like, no, you don't do that to your sister. She's, I think she's like a bit like Stanley. She's like the prodigal wild daughter, whereas Justine is the goody one, the the bright one. And the contrast between the two girls begins to sort of disappear as the year progresses and Justine begins to sort of blend in with her sister and just step into, literally step into her sister's shoes. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting take um, on, on what everyone sort of has to fight with every day, genetics and all that. It's a good... Um, coming of age story and i felt i felt really sad at the end when you have the you have these two rookies so you have justine and her roommate Admea, i think that's his name and he's he's a, he's a, he's again i think he is also trying to figure out who he is and what his identity and what his sexuality is he's quite conflicted as well um, he's not a cannibal, uh, uh, but you kind of see him having his own demons as well, and you you see them bonding, and you know he's the one who sort of teaches, like she teaches him school, and he sort of initiates her into the world of sex, and it feels sad at the end because when the air horn blows the three blows you see that he didn't make it to the end he was not in it fully initiated so yeah. yeah um i think it's a great great film that stays with you long after it's finished and it makes you think about a lot of things um i had this conversation with my mother not long ago and i told her that i've I think I've gotten good at finding and trying to isolate the habits that I, I, I grew up with that I, as I, I was growing up, I found quite normal. 
but if you live in in the same environment your whole life you might not be able to notice it but if you move away like i did those things that you grew up with that you feel you felt your whole life they were just normal they they will stand up when compared to other people's normal things and what is usual and what's normal and not normal in society um i i like the relationship between between the two sisters because even though they have they're fighting and they're basically at each other's throats literally um for a while ultimately they are still sisters and they look after each other and that scene when when justine takes alexia and just into the shower and just cleans her up after alexia's eaten adrian <laughs> um it just yeah it's quite emotional so yeah that's kind of what i had good i'm 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 glad i'm glad you like this like i said like i'm i was i'm in an r in for a while but about my what how how you would take this but i'm kind of glad you, you're a lot more positive on this than you were with um uh the neon demon yeah well um, i didn't i wasn't ex- i was i was given a quite a bit of warning on this one and the neon th- those scenes in the neon demon just came out of nowhere and again i yeah, think I, we've we've, we've discussed deli- about this deliberately about... didn't tell yeah. you about that yeah so it's kind of that with me i didn't expect it and it's yeah expectation is is quite a lot it's quite important i think yeah i mean like with the neon demon like even like i saw that film blind because it was like it was a nicholas Wendon Refn film i was going to see it in the cinema and then when i was sat there in the cinema and then that happened it was like holy shit what the fuck um yeah whereas with raw you know i had the build-up as well you know like with yeah, IQ, like yeah. It just um so yeah i mean with this with this film you know i i myself named it um when i did my when i used to write for film website i did ended up doing the best of uh list for 2017 and um i myself named it as the 10th best film of 2017 um i think i had a few yeah i think lost city of z was higher up and higher in the list and so was um blade runner 2049 so it was a really really strong year from what i can remember um and in my review i actually re-looked at my review and i was allowed you know like a few lines about the film i'm i read it back i'm quite proud of myself about how succinctly i managed to kind of sum up my thoughts so i wrote back then that this is a tale of sisterhood and growing up which is somewhat like ginger snaps a discovery of one's urges and primal needs. Raw hits a gruesome note, but is fascinating. Julia de Cornell's feature feature debut is strong, powerful, oddly erotic, and full of symbolism. I, I, reading that back, I'm quite proud of myself. Um, because when I was rewatching the film, I didn't, I didn't have the the automatic association with Ginger Snaps, which is a film from the year 2000 about two sisters. One of which, uh, two teenage sisters, they're about uh, 13, 14, I think. And one of them gets bitten by a werewolf. The older sister gets bitten by the werewolf. And obviously the whole thing is about, you know, 
moon cycles and and you know transformations and all this kind of thing and turning into something that you're not really sure you want to be in all this full of meaning um and this film kind of does the same thing as well as having it revolving around sisters um and i think it'll be really good to have ginger snaps as well i think on the podcast especially if we end up talking about womanhood or transformation with women or sisters again you know i think it'll be a good film for us to kind of tackle on the podcast it's a really really excellent little horror movie Mm. um so yeah uh with this there is something like i said really quite primal about this um the like the relationship between the sisters for example i think is it feels so realistic like um you know that it's one of you know i have a younger sister myself and you know when I was still living at home and she was about 12 13 and i was about 17 18 you know it would i would literally want to kill her most days but now it's like you can't separate us <laughs> like whenever we see each other you know we all have our you know what i mean and it's yeah. like it's a it's a it's 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 a sibling relationship in this is one of care there's rivalry there's love there's hate there's spite jealousy and the film does it kind of takes this and and it takes the themes of the, the cannibalism thing and it and it just loads it with allegory and meaning you know as much as you know when uh, ginger snaps um instead of like cuz you picked up on on the remembering you know your genes and what you know your mum was like that kind of thing and yeah i kind of read it in the more of you know of a teenage girl becoming more sexually active and well becoming sexually active and discovering herself and then finding out that her mother and her sister were the same kind of thing and so i looked at it more of like in that aspect of it all rather than i think it's got a bit of everything in there yeah um and the, the the kind of the scene that made me kind of run a lean towards this is is the scene where she's having sex with adrian and she's losing her virginity and it it had me as scared and as squeamish as um the sex scene or any of the sex scenes in a horror movie called teeth i don't know if you know about teeth no um so that's a 2006 2007 uh horror movie about this girl who um uh becomes sexually active and she finds out she has um vagina dentata um <laughs> uh, aka teeth yeah i know where vagina dentata is oh and um. that that <laughs> film that film put yeah oh no uh, no, no. Um, oh, yeah, um, no, no, no. But the film has, but the film ends up that that film ends up having a very positive, like feminist attitude towards empowerment with it. You know, ends up it first starts off as like this, you know, curse of oh no, I can't have sex, and then it turns into I can use this to punish the men that have wronged me, or I can use this as my own power, and it's a really weird film. Anyway. And this one kind of has that almost as well. Like, you know, Justine isn't sure whether she wants to use it, you know, whether she wants to become it, like what Alexia does, or whether she wants to repress it, which is what it's implied her mother ends up doing. Um, and with 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 Adrian, you know, I 
I feel really bad for that guy. You know, yeah. Justine is having sex with him and, you know, you can see her. She's like an animal, you know, she's biting and writhing, you know, she, she's wakening, she's transforming into something that's not human. And with Adrian, you know, he's he's just been kind of preyed on because, like, he 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 had no interest in her sexually in, in that way. But no. he was kind of seduced by her because of his own insecurities towards him, you know, and his own um, coming to terms of being a gay man, and 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 then is is then ultimately punished for it because he's then eaten by Alexia. Yeah, um, which you it can made see me... coming a mile off. Yeah, it made me think of um, that that scene when when Justine becomes more of an animal and once she's having sex with Adrian is made made me think of of cat people, uh, Jacques Tourneau's uh. Uh, film Cat People with uh, Simon and Simon. Um, and have you seen it? No, no, no. I I know of it though because um I've I've seen the the bus scene shown to me so yes, many times as like the old, one yeah. of the ultimate examples in it, horror as a cat. Yeah. It's the cat scare basically. It's where the it's cat the scare cat came scare. from. Yeah. Um. It's it's basically about this Serbian immigrant woman who fears that she will turn into a cat person, like a proper feline. Uh, if if she gets intimate, if she actually has sex, so if she becomes aroused, she will turn into a panther or something. All right, I I definitely think we should have that on the podcast. Yeah, with, definitely. With Jin- um, with, it's, I think it's a it works really well with it. Sounded with it. It sounds like it would really well with ginger snaps. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's do it. So yeah, no, I I'm I'll write that down. Um. The two, the performances from the two leads, I um, Garance Miller, Mar- Mar- uh, sorry, Garance Marillier and Ella Rumpf um, as Justine and, and Alexia respectively are, are utterly, utterly brilliant. Um, so for Garance, this was her first feature starring role, and for Ella, it was her third. But you wouldn't know it brilliant. from. They were both brilliant. They were both excellent. Um, and I. They really kind of play, both of them play the roles perfectly, and you know it'll be really interesting to see where their careers end up going, um, along with what Julia de Cornell ends up doing next. Um, so the final shot of the dad opening up his shirt and revealing the scars, wow. you know, that yeah. for me stands as one of my favourite final shots in any horror film. Um, it's so loaded with meaning and, and I mean, that's was yeah. the whole film. You could write a dissertation on the film's themes and allegory and, and still need to cut back a few thousand words. Like it, it's, it's, oh, it's so good. Um, so apart from like its similarities between ginger snaps and teeth, which are my own kind of projections on the film, I think like the other inspiration, one of the, one of the main inspirations of the film is anything by David Cronenberg. Um, I don't know if you've seen any Cronenberg. Uh, I saw The Fly when I was, well, not six, I was maybe a bit older. Um, and A History of Violence, which I really loved, but I've kind of steered away from most of the quintessential Cronenbergian, is that a word? Yeah, and... Cronenbergian is, is definitely a word. Yeah, so for the for the obvious reasons, I think I've seen some clips from. A f- What's that film where there's there's someone in the bathtub and there's stuff coming out of the 
draining thing. I think that shiv. No, shivers. Yeah, I think it's shivers. Probably um, shivers. Yeah. There's yeah, yeah there's there's stuff coming. Yeah, and parasites and whatnot. Yeah, I think that think that shivers. Um, with with yeah, when you say like Cronenbergian, like I'm definitely referring to you know anything like the fly with um grundle flies transformation um you know he has his penis in a jar um, <laughs> which is one of my favorite visual gags in a film um i can see with this i can see elements of shivers i can see rabid probably most definitely in this um there are bits of video drone in this um it, it's yeah it's definitely really 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 cronenbergian and obviously the the link with with texas chainsaw massacre which I mean, I really, you know, going to give it away. We're going to actually end up having Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the podcast in when we when we have uh, our Halloween October. Um, so yeah. it's going to be interesting to see. Can't believe I've not seen that yet. Well, it, it's going to be really interesting, I think, because you know we've spoken about two film two film directors that have cited Texas Chainsaw Massacre as key texts for them. Uh, Julia de Cornell, obviously today, and then when we spoke about the Neon Demon, um, you know Nicholas Refin has come out and said on multiple occasions that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the greatest films of all time for him, and it, it left such an in, in, a mark on him as a film director, and you can really see it. And I'd be really, really interesting to know what your thoughts are on the on that film, and then in retrospective to Raw and Neon Demon. So it's, I think it's going to be end up. I'm really looking forward to what you think of that, because um, okay. I think along you know like we've done with Raw, I can imagine you've got an expectation of what that film is well, going to be I like. I do now. <laughs> no, but <laughs> even so, like before then, I mean, I've you, seen some scenes, had... and I've I've seen I've seen posters, and I've seen some clips of Leatherface. So I kind of yeah yeah I kind of do have some expectations. Um something under i mean i don't know maybe something on like a cross between raw and deliverance i don't know uh, no maybe. I, I, uh, it's it's hard because for, for um, texas chainsaw massacre like it's constantly referred to as you know like this is the scariest film ever made. You know, it's always always in like the top three of horror films ever made, and rightfully so in my opinion. And my dad, um, I remember my dad coming home from from I think it was like HMV or NBC or Virgin Megastore or something, and he had bought the new copy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I remember him coming into the living room and then putting it on his on his little counter and being like, oh. And I end up looking at it and I see the chainsaw and it's all got blood on it, and I'm like what is this dad this looks amazing and he's like you're never gonna watch that until you're over the age of 18 and it's like immediately i want to see this film and i have an expectation of what that film is like and then i hear you know things about it and i you know even the title you know the texas chainsaw massacre you know yeah like, it's yeah it you sounds... kind of expect what yeah expected to do what you, it says on the tip you ex exactly <laughs> and um yeah I, that's what i mean like so it's really interesting when we talk about that, what you end up thinking retroactive, retrospectively about mm -hmm. Raw and, and then the Neon Demon. So yeah, um, 
this this film is is i think excellent i think it's one of the best debut films you know i, I said that brick was a was a fantastic debut film when we spoke about that with ryan johnson and i think julia de Cornell's uh roar is is definitely up there as one of the strong really strong debut films um and you know films by horror horror films by by female directors are always always really interesting because you end up getting away from the male gaze which is something which kind of ends up stunting horror films um you you know you that's how you end up with the tropes and the final girl and and some some yeah. directors kind of play up against it and some are really good at it some aren't and it you know and and you know i spoke about jennifer kent with the babadook you know that's a fantastic film and and a female director doing something really really interesting about grief um and a woman trying to cope with raising her troubled son um you know I, there's, yeah. a, there's a few others i mean uh anna limi uh, anna lily amapore a girl who walks home alone at night it's just like a vampire western horror film you've got um as police director i can't i'm not going to even attempt her name but she did a film called the law which is about two sisters who are uh, mermaids i think you told um, me about a, it yeah so uh so that is a musical it's a polish musical set in 1980s poland um about two telepathic mermaids man-eating mermaids okay. um and it is utterly utterly excellent um and then and then um we've got the severely underrated um uh, Jennifer's Body starring Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried directed by Karen uh, Kusama um that and it's film written came out by Diablo Cody who wrote Juno by Diablo... I I mean and I think she won will, an Oscar for Juno Juno yes she did I mean see what you will about Diablo Cody I mean some people like her dialogue others don't I'm a bit I quite I like Juno, really and I, I'm not sure. I was actually, uh, I think I was not keen to watch Jennifer's Body because I'm not a big fan of Megan Fox's acting, but maybe I should give it a go. But again, there, I think there's a lot of other films that are higher on the list. To yeah, be no, I, 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 I will. I mean, Megan's Megan Fox's performance in Jennifer's Body has kind of got a um it got a bad rap at the time uh because it was it was released um you know and the marketing campaign i don't know if you remember the marketing campaign was like hot no. megan fox on the poster and she's gonna kill and eat people you know yeah i think i saw the poster and it was not something that i was sexy. going to yeah yeah exactly it's kind of aimed towards teenage boys and i watched it as a 19 year old sat in the cinema and i thought it was the worst film i'd ever seen and it's because it wasn't the film it was marketed as i watched it a few years later i watched it a few years ago for the first time in a while and i realized that oh my god this is actually excellent this is uh, um a female starring female f written directed all about women's experiences um in a horror film and it it's it's so underrated and megan fox's performance is is ex excellent okay. um and it's like it's it's kind of got this reappraisal now because you know there's a lot of uh writers film writers nowadays that are you know kind of obviously a lot more film uh, female writers there's a lot more 
um, gay and lesbian and queer writers and there's a lot of queer readings in Jennifer's body um, you know so much so that I really can't believe I missed that on the first viewing um, and it's, it's also an excellent horror film so it, it's interesting to see it's really I really like seeing um, horror movies done by female directors is what I'm trying to say because it's always something really it's something interesting and different um, the Soska sisters, for example, of American Mary, Mary, uh, American Mary, and the remake of Rabid. You know, always they're doing something different to, you know, a contemporary like Tom Six, for example. You know, the director of Human Centipede. You know, that he, you know, they're doing something a lot different to what he's doing in the same sort of wheelhouse. Um, so yeah, no, it, it I, I, Roar is is an utterly brilliant film. Um, and I'm really happy to have gotten it onto this onto this podcast. And I, I apologize for my kind of my ramble about horror films for a bit. It's not often I get to talk about genre on the podcast, so I've got to jump at the chance. <laughs> um. Okay. We have a whole horror month prepared for the month of October, but okay. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I mean, like, it, it's so far, like, I haven't had the chance to talk about like a horror film as deep as this or you know neon demon we ended up talking about refin more than horror um and you know a sci-fi we haven't really touched yet but we're getting we're getting there trust us listeners we're getting there um there's a lot to do yeah we've got exciting there have been there's a lot of films that have been made that we haven't talked about yeah as yeah and there's 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 a few um sci-fi and horror films that are really embarrassing blind spots um for me but we'll get there oh and... me too although i'm i'm quite a big horror fan i like horror um more perhaps more on the classical side rather than the gory super yeah man-eating side but i do have my blind spots and when it comes to horror as well yeah, no, no, the, 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 yeah, that's fine. That's utterly, utterly fine. Um, okay, so is that that's kind of us done, really, isn't it? Yeah. For this? Um. Yeah. So, so. What have you got on for next week? Next week. Um. So we 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 are having films. Both of our films, I would consider. Mine definitely is my all-time favourite film of all time. And I think Danny's her choice is definitely up there as one of her, your favourites, would you say? I would say. Um, yeah. It's not my favourite film of all time, but it was... When we put these together, we thought of having films about show business. Directors. And, yeah, and one of my favourite directors of all time is Francois Truffaut. And I thought, I think I had just seen um, Day for Night for the first time quite recently. And I was, yeah, I, I just jumped at the opportunity to talk about it. Um, Day for Night, which is La Nuit Américaine, is not my favourite Truffaut film, but it's definitely up there. And I can't wait to talk about it. And I've, I've paired this with my favourite film, All That Jazz. Uh, from 1979, directed by Bob Fosse, um, starring uh, Roy Scheider and Jessica Lang, among many others. Um, I'm very, very excited to talk about uh, talk about Bob Fosse and all that jazz. Um, 
so yeah that that's that's next week um please tune in for that um so danny where can we find you on the internet you can find me on twitter at kino joan and my website is kinojoan.co.uk and you can find me on the internet at nick s chandler on twitter uh, my website is superatomicvision.com we've got our own podcast twitter at keenotomic um follow us on there and we got our gmail um keenotomic at gmail.com um yeah let us know um you know how you kind of deal with gross things on screen whether you're okay with them whether you're not okay with them um let us know if if there's anything you're surprised that you've cut into and realized was a cake it's um, a topical reference for for everybody um yeah so that, that that's that's that um it's a thank you for listening from me and a thank you for listening from me